I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, go to our webpage, that's IThinkThereforeIFan.com, all one word, click on the link that says Donate, and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. Spoiler warning time. In this episode, we discuss The Twilight Zone, Breaking Bad, Groundhog Day, Happy Death Day, Joe vs. the Volcano, The Seventh Seal, The Honeymooners, The Flintstones, Married with Children, Bad Santa, Bad Santa 2, The Possession of Hannah Grace, The Good Place, Room 104, and Disney's Robin Hood. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Well, hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Um, today we're talking about a whole bunch of different things. We're going to talk about postmodernism, relativism, the writings of Jacques Derrida, um, compatibilism in the free will debate, um, deontology and, and you know, modern versions of Kantian moral philosophy and Kantian metaphysics. Um, it's going to be no, exciting. No, we're not. We're, that would be an impossibly long episode. Um, well, what are we talking about? We're talking about absurdist philosophy. Right. Aren't all those things that I just referenced completely absurd in their own right? No. No. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Um, why don't you tell us what you think um, absurdist philosophy is? I mean, if, if it's not postmodernism or compatibilism, then I don't know what counts as absurd. <laughs> well, we're talking about this term as a technical term. Uh I, I, I guess think we could start by talking about absurdism in the works of philosopher Albert Camus. Um, Every time a bell rings, um, Camus gets more wings. Interesting. Or I get a text message at an inopportune time. Or you get a text message. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, so it's, it's the absurd in the sense of the existentialists and some contemporary subsequent philosophers. Right. Um, so Camus. Um, right, so Camus' account of, of, of absurdity is that absurdity is a confrontation between the desires of an individual and an indifferent universe. So we're capable of uh, examining the universe from the objective perspective. Human beings are kind of unique in this regard, that we're ca- capable of looking at the world not just as it comes to us, but... Um, but taking a step back and reflectively analyzing that world. And in a lot of respects, it seems like just the universe is just not the kind of thing that's capable of caring about us, mm-hmm. right? And, and in particular, with respect to some of our most fundamental desires, the universe doesn't care because the universe can't care. So one thing that we, most of us really want is to feel significant in some respect, to feel fundamentally significant. Um, but when you look at the universe from the objective stance... Human beings are both very small mm-hmm. and they, they occupy just a little blip on the grand timeline of the universe. 
And so it really looks like human beings aren't significant. So, now, so when we win the Nobel Prize for podcasting, <laughs> um, they have okay, to invent no. it first. <laughs> You'll care. I'll care. And all of our rabid uh, fans will care. The rabid fans will care. But the universe won't, won't care. It, <laughs> it, it won't matter a lick. I mean, this podcast is only going to occupy a very, very small space in the grand timeline of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so our desire to be significant is, seems to be frustrated. Uh, what's more, we all, I think most of us, unless uh, so long as we're living lives that are worth living, desire not to die. Mm-hmm. Right? But again, and we don't want our loved ones to die, people we care about. Uh, but again, the universe isn't the kind of thing that is capable of caring about that. And so we see these fundamental level desires frustrated over and over again. And it's not just um, these major facets of our lives, these these ways of describing our life in terms of significance or um, the, the final end state that can cause us to reflect on the absurdity of our condition. Camus thinks that just recognizing the tedium of the projects that we engage in can give rise to the sense that our existence is absurd. So I'll read you one of my favorite quotes from Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus. It happens that the stage sets collapse. Rising, streetcar, four hours in the office or the factory, meal, streetcar, four hours of work, meal, sleep, and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, according to the same rhythm. The path is easily followed most of the time. But one day the why arises, and everything begins in that weariness tinged with with amazement. Begins. This is important. Weariness comes at the end of the acts of a mechanical life. But at the same time, it inaugurates the impulse of consciousness. It awakens consciousness and provokes what follows. What follows is a gradual return into the chain, or it is the definitive awakening. At the end of the awakening comes in time the consequence, suicide or recovery. So Nice. Yeah, I like that a lot. So he, he points out that there are moments in our lives where the, the absurdism of our existence hits us. And in those moments, we have a choice what we're going to do with that. And it, he thinks most people turn to escapist strategies. Mm-hmm. So some kinds of escapist strategies might be that he starts the myth of Sisyphus by saying there's only one truly philosophical question and that's suicide. Mm -hmm. So whether, whether there is something about life that makes it, uh, makes it worth living in some sense. Um, and so that's one of the possible approaches you might take to the tedium of, of human existence. Now, nobody do that. Um, we're not advocating that. Right. So, Um, just before we go further, there's a great episode of The Twilight Zone. Do you remember the one? I think the title is probably Willoughby. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right? So that's capturing that perfectly, right? This guy's um, got this life, and he's, you know, he's in a pretty unhappy relationship um, with his wife. Um, they, they don't get along. They're both sort of disappointed in one another. He's not satisfied with his job. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't like his boss. His boss doesn't like him, right? Mm-hmm. So he's, it's the same thing day in, day out. Um, and he, you know, rides the, the train home every night and he goes into this sort of dream state. And then the conductor says, next stop Willoughby. And he looks out at Willoughby and it looks pretty good. And eventually one of the times he, um, he gets off the train in Willoughby, right? And it's a, a simpler 
place. It, it looks like it's, you know, the, the mid-1800s, and it's, you know, there's a big park and a carousel, and, you know, people are fishing in the pond and, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> and then it, it becomes clear at the end of the episode that, that he's committed suicide, right? So he's, mm-hmm. he's actually made this choice, right? It's, if that's the question, the only question is, you know, do I commit suicide? At least in this episode... Um, the, the person did, and for him, that was the right choice, right? He was suddenly very happy. There, you know, he mm-hmm. found this, um, this better place. Um, Camus was probably with him all the way up till the you commit suicide, and then you get some kind of heavenly payoff. I mean, I think Camus thinks that to engage in escapist strategies is to be inauthentic, mm-hmm. right? So he advocates becoming an absurd hero like Sisyphus. So I'll just briefly describe the story behind the, the name of, of Camus' essay. Um, so there's there are different ways that the, the, the starting points get described, um, even by Camus himself. He points out that the, the stories aren't always the same. Um, but the Sisyphus has been doomed by the gods. He's been doomed by the gods to push a large boulder up to the top of the hill and then watch it roll back down. Uh, and he must engage in this task over and over and over again for eternity. Um, and so this is supposed to be hell. It's, it's, it's tedious, it's meaningless. Uh, and, but there's a way that Sisyphus can transcend his situation. Uh, there's a way in which he can sort of be defiant of the gods, and that's by authentically recognizing the absurdity of his condition, but choosing to make his response to that his own. So he could do a number of things. He could, so he can't choose that he's pushing the boulder. That's going to happen, and it's going to roll back down inevitably, just like rising streetcar meal, right? Of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right? Mm-hmm. But he can, he can control how he responds to it. So if he wants to learn to love his rock and his task, to know every, you know crevice in the mountain every uh bump on the rock that he's pushing and and to find a home there then then that's one way he can he can make this hell something else Mm -hmm. so he can't he can't control he can't control the exact actions he's performing but he can control his mental state toward them but what makes Camus a, a or excuse me what makes Sisyphus an absurd hero in this case is that he recognizes the absurdity of his situation he doesn't respond to it inauthentically mm-hmm. he doesn't try to escape it you know he doesn't um so one form of escapism is suicide but uh, there are two other forms and I'm just putting on my Camus hat here I'm not uh saying I agree with him in in, in either of these two respects but he thinks that for example religion is an escapist strategy mm-hmm. because you take these uh, when you take the objective stance and reflect on the nature of the universe. Uh, some of the things that you really want to be true turn out to look like they're not true, right? So, mm-hmm. um, to have free will in a robust way, I think the existentialists are sort of all over the place on this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to you know, does God exist? Well, some people think if you look at this from the objective stance, it seems like he doesn't. Um, you know, we want to stay alive. We don't want to die. These sorts of things, and it seems like religion is able to answer each and every one of those. Right? There mm-hmm. is a God, you, and we're just going to stipulate you have free will. You're you're going to live an eternal life. You you'll you'll die in the sense that your physical body will will decompose, but you'll exist beyond that. And so that's uh, embracing religion is a way of uh, responding to the absurd that's inauthentic mm-hmm. because it just rejects all of these problems as problems at all. Right. And, and actually 
rejects the absurdity, right? Mm -hmm. There's some other right. kind of meaning behind it all to block anything from, from being absurd. Yeah, right. So we're our, all part a, of an important test at every moment. The universe cares greatly right. how we respond. Right. So we're to, significant, too. That makes yeah. us significant. So we overcome the insignificance issue. Um, right, I'm and, going with that one. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but another, another way in which Camus thinks you can live life inauthentically is to not necessarily appeal to religion, but to appeal to some philosophy that's supposed to be transcendent. Like... Uh, that though human beings might all inevitably die, we could create these ideas that will live forever or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, Plato's theory of the forms or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, he thinks that's inauthentic too because it fails to recognize, look, people aren't going to care about Plato's theory of the forms and when, when the earth burns up you know right. inevitably let, let, let me press back on Camus a little bit here and, and you sort of play the part of of the defender of Camus um why isn't Camus strategy also sort of inauthentic right I, mm -hmm. I, I'm Sisyphus I'm pushing this rock up and down I, I don't try to escape it I don't try to provide significance I don't deceive myself about my role in the universe mm -hmm. um but yet I'm now this absurd hero that, you know, why, why do I even want to do that? Well, let me, uh, I, I maybe described the range of his responses too narrowly. Um, what matters to Camus is not, you know, uh, it's not like you have to be happy pushing your rock. Mm -hmm. You have to be authentic pushing your rock, mm -hmm. right? You have to be, it, it's, it's about ownership. So if the way that, this is at least my reading of Camus, if, if, if Sisyphus's response is, uh, to be angry with the gods, to shake his fist in scorn, whatever, mm -hmm. then that's, that's, a, that's, he's an absurd hero in that case as well. Mm -hmm. um, so. Okay. So, but I, I, I pushed the rock and um, I'm still just a blip, right? I mean, it, it doesn't matter what I do pushing the rock, whether I live authentically or inauthentically, because oh I'm yeah, still just Camus rejects be that there is any meaning in life. Uh -huh. um, he's so I don't take him to be like solving those problems. Mm -hmm. I think what what's being valued here is authenticity. Right, and you might disagree that authenticity is of that's, any genuine value. That's the question. But, Who yeah. cares if I'm inauthentic in a the face of a universe that that um, can't care about my Nobel Prize in podcasting, <laughs> my thousands of adoring fans. Um, you know, our talking dog, whatever, whatever. I mean, you, you might not on. care. Um, in which case you don't need a problem, a, a solution or anything to the problem of absurdity. Cause you just don't mm -hmm. like, don't care. Yeah. <laughs> right? So <laughs> I don't know. Or, or you do care, but, but you, you recognize you don't think that authenticity that, does anything to solve it. Yeah. I mean, you know, at, at the point where you've got this kind of nihilism lurking in the background, mm -hmm. I wonder if it's just a, a losing game to, distinguish between authentic and inauthentic moves, right? Even the authentic is, is irrelevant. Sure. This is a really sad episode. <laughs> um, everybody just take a minute to hug a baby or something. <laughs> well, we're going to get to a less gloomy account of a couple less. Gloomy I actually accounts like the gloomy. I'm really comfortable here. <laughs> so you see this explored a lot of times in pop culture when, uh, when, when you've got characters maybe on a television show or a movie or something, uh, engaging in just a tedious, meaningless task. And we'll, you'll recognize that if you have a background in this is, oh, this is, this is an absurdist mm -hmm. episode. So what I'm thinking about is 
the episode of Breaking Bad where um, Jesse and Walt are uh, in that place that Gus has built. Yeah, is it is it Walt and Gail in in this particular case, or is it Walt and Jesse? I don't. I can't remember for certain. Yeah, I'm now picturing. I thought it was Jesse, but all of them there, but only two at a time. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, there's a fly loose in the place, mm-hmm. and it's a non-standard episode of Breaking Bad because if I'm remembering the particulars correctly. What they're doing the entire time is trying to get rid of this fly. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, like, it's the most existential yeah, yeah. of all Breaking Bad mm-hmm. episodes. Yeah, nothing happens that moves the plot forward. Just the, the, the lab needs to be clean. They get it pretty clean, and then there's a fly. And yeah. For about an hour. <laughs> yeah. well, at least there's a fly in the lab, as yep. someone we know once said. <laughs> sort of. So, uh, yeah, I, um, another thing I'm thinking, we've been re- watching Room 104, and I think Room 104 has absurdist elements in the in, mm-hmm. in Camus' sense here, too, because uh, there's just all these little vignettes, right, about what happened in this room, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and there's never any, I mean, there's never any real resolution or nobody's going to do anything about it. In some, in some cases, some pretty gnarly things are happening in this room. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes some metaphysical miracles <laughs> taking place in this room and yet nobody's ever going to hear about it we just get these little you know clips little snippets and right, the room right. remains the same right uh, most of the stories don't even have much of a plot you're just mm-hmm. given a window into mm-hmm. some kind of weirdness going it's on like here are just a series of things that happen mm-hmm. and, and in a sense that's what the universe is like just a series of things that happen and and there's nothing that we're ultimately going to take from the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, so very much, um, although the, the qualitative feels different, um, like any number of Jim Jarmusch films, right? Um, I'm thinking like Dead Man, right? The guy gets shot at the beginning, just floats down a river for a couple hours. It's a long, slow death. That's what life is. And then along the way, he sees things. Some of them are really goofy and absurd. Some of them are just kind of <laughs> par for the course. But there's, there's no plot. Just a guy going down a river that's going to die. Condemned to die at the beginning of it. Dies at the end. One of my favorite movies that explores concepts like this. It explores so many philosophical concepts that I think it's one of the most rich philosophical films that's ever been made is The Seventh Seal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the scene that I'm thinking of is... Is that the one that gets the ball on the end of its nose or the, the one that can catch... Two fish at a time. Okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Apologies to all of podcastum. <laughs> um, it's so uh, in in particular um, the scene from the Seventh Seal where they're burning the witch and um, she's just sort of gazing off into space and they're describing her. Uh, the main characters are describing her as you know she's facing her death as uh, she's about to be burned. And she's got this horrified look on her face. And what the, her recognition in this moment is that there isn't anything beyond, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that scene, I think, is... Uh, and and, and there's, they say something like, her grief is our grief or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there isn't any more to this life than this life. Now, you might... I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners think something very different from this. Uh, also, I'm kind of thinking if, if you, you're actually a witch, right? Uh-huh. Maybe you should be banking on nothing more, right? It, well, I think 
if you're if you're a witch uh, in in this sense, uh, because they're they're doing like this witch hunt type um, era uh, storytelling. That within this context, these are devil worshippers. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, instead, what was going on in those cases is these are human rights violations, and these people are right, being murdered. right, right. But uh, um, but I, I, even within the the uh, the film, there's some suggestion that this is a devil worshiper. So if you, mm-hmm. if you, in that context, if you're that kind of witch, you're banking on the devil, right? Not nothing. But, but, but even if you're banking on the devil, you're, you're better off, right? I mean, th- if there's there's, no- this is the problem with devil worshippers. I mean, if if they're right, they're going to be really sorry, right? I mean, way way and sorry. If the than devil's really think. evil, then he, yeah, you, you can't expect yeah. just. Merit-based con- treatment. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah, and if, if the devil's not really evil, then you're not meeting the guy you've been worshiping. It's it's bad no matter what. Yeah. Right? It's a it's a dilemma argument. But um, anyway, this witch, as she's about to be burned, is um, in a mo- in this moment that Camus has described, where it's in her conscience, her consciousness is inaugurated. Right, mm-hmm. where she's her consciousness is inaugurated. She's aware of the absurdity of her own condition right before she dies. Nice. So, uh, some other uh, kind of m- movies that explore these sort of tedious life processes um, include films like uh, Groundhog's Day and mm-hmm. Happy Death Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought you had an interesting take on this because Hollywood will never really do this, right? So, what, tell right, me. right. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's tons of these things. Um, the Joe versus the volcano type. Films where you know you've you've got the the hero and they're in some sort of routine like the the guy in the Twilight Zone episode that we talked about earlier and it's miserable um, and always they find some way to break out of it right it's that mm-hmm. you, you never have anybody um, doing you know Camus authentic thing where you say okay this this is it right if, yeah. you know if I'm gonna keep the books I'm gonna keep the books in order, and I'm going to write as legibly as possible, and I'm going to make as few mistakes as I can, and these are going to be the best darn books ever, and and that's that, right? So in Groundhog Day, um, you know, you've got the, the main character, um, Phil. Um, I forgot his name for a second there, but they say Phil like one million times in that movie. Um, you know, he rises above it, and then he gets out of the trap, right? He, he develops his character so well that... Um, you know, the, the universe um, has taken an interest in him, has taught him his lesson, and mm-hmm. he's now rewarded with, with the love of his life. Yeah, and he breaks uh, out. Yeah, and, in, you know, in Joe versus the vol- Volcano, right, the, the Tom Hanks character um, is kind of a mark because he's such a sad sack and a hypochondriac and a defeatist and everything else. And um, so, you know, they, they talk him into jumping in a volcano. Um and they, they give him a, you know, a heck of a couple of days before, better than the whole rest of his life combined, and you know, before he does it, as payment. Um, and then it, it works out. Um, he beats the rap, and in doing so, realizes he doesn't have to live that dreary life that, that you know, he's lived all along. I mean, this is just a common Hollywood take, right? You, you, you take a Sisyphus, and, and you don't. You, you have him you know, trick the gods and get out of the rock business. And yeah, right. It, yeah, it's just, just, you know, if they made the movie The Myth of Sisyphus, uh, you you could trust Hollywood to inevitably 
allow Sisyphus to escape. Like, you'd just be tracking for that. It'd be interesting to watch a movie where that just never happens, where it's it's all about, no, this is forever. This is absurdism forever. Yeah. I mean, there have been a handful of sitcoms that kind of do this, right, where you've got this sort of hapless person and, and they're never going to win no matter what. Um, so, um, you know, the, the, the person that, that you root for, um, sort of like the, you know, the rabbit in the old tricks commercial, right? It's never going to get the tricks. Al Bundy and Married with Children, you know. Um, Fred Flintstone, you know, has always got a get-rich-quick scheme and inventor and just... Lucy and Charlie Brown. Yeah, Charlie's never going to kick the, right. the, the football. It's, yeah. you know... Um, and until that stupid movie a couple of years ago ruined it, he was never going to get the little redhead girl. She wasn't <laughs> even going to pay him a moment's worth of attention. But, um, you know, suddenly um, there he is in the game. So, um, yeah, I mean, there have been like some, there's a, a take on it where the person's this, you know, like I said, kind of the hapless loser. Um, but even there, they're they're not embracing it, right? This is... Someone who's, you know, I'm going to get out. I'm going to beat the system. You know, Ralph Cramden on the Honeymooners is, you know, going to make it big someday. Um, and just doesn't, right? So what you're advocating is, let's just have some dreary, this is going to be the worst show ever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> a whole bunch of dreary people all embracing their dreariness. Okay, you know what show does this? Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks is just a mess the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. It's absurd. It's meaningless. It's random and bizarre and it's not resolved ever. All right. So season one had eight episodes, none of which are about Twin Peaks. Um, Give me a minute. I'm going to build a time machine, go back, make an episode (laughs) about Twin Peaks, put it in season one, done. Okay, I'm back. Um, (laughs) Everyone should go and and look and see if that worked. (laughs) What, where where it's resolved? Yeah, we're, we're, no, we're, where we have an episode in our podcast about Twin Peaks that wasn't there before this oh, moment. Oh, I see. Yeah, so in other words, you're saying we've done an episode on Twin Peaks. <laughs> Listen to it. Or I just went back in time. Oh, I ruined it. Okay. Okay, whatever. <laughs> so what are some of the other accounts of the absurd besides Camus? Well, I'll mention one briefly, and then uh, the other at a little bit more length. Um so one account of the absurd comes from philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, Kierkegaard understood absurdity as being essentially uh, that which is contrary to reason. And so uh, the person who embraces an, a religious lifestyle takes a leap of faith uh, to believe the absurd. So one example from, uh, excuse me, from Kierkegaard is... Uh, the story of Abraham and Isaac, where uh, Abraham simultaneously believes that it has faith in God, um, trusts in God uh, to do only what is right uh, and to command only what is right. Well, at the same time, he's willing to sacrifice his only son. Mm-hmm. Um, and he takes the leap of faith. Uh, those two things, those two propositions seem inconsistent. Right, uh, right. And yet, uh, Abraham believes them both. Um, so, uh, in terms of pop culture, I'm sort of thinking about horror movies, actually, in this respect. Uh, you might think that a lot of ghost stories 
require the same sort of belief, belief in the absurd in this sense, mm-hmm. uh, that it's possible for some person to be out buried in the ground and simultaneously inside the house or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Things that are, that are dead and no longer exist and still exist in some way and haunt. Um, things that are immaterial, but they can pick you up and throw you. Right. right. Yeah. All those kinds of things. So, and then finally, the other account of the absurd I wanted to talk about was uh, Thomas Nagels. He's a contemporary philosopher, a living philosopher. He, his response, or his, his account of absurdity is a response to Camus. And it's that uh, absurdity isn't, as Camus would have it, a confrontation between the desires of an individual and an indifferent universe. It's a conflict not between ourselves and some external factor, but between different features of ourselves, right? So this is, Nagel's account is much less gloomy than Camus. Yeah, it doesn't seem to have the existentialist overtones. Um, right. Yeah, in fact, it's, 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 it kind of comes from a place of appreciation um, of the human condition rather than a dread of the human condition and appreciation of it. So the idea, Nagel's account of absurdity is that um, we human beings are interesting in the sense that they're capable of taking the objective stance uh, and the subjective stance at the same time, toward the same thing. So from the subjective stance, we approach our goals and our projects and the things that we want out of the world as if they're valuable, they're deserving of pursuit, and of course, we have to live this way or else we'd never, we'd be immobilized, right? Mm-hmm. It's the fact that we, we see the world in a subjective way that allows us to be motivated at all. But on the other hand, uh, the fact that we, human beings are capable of taking the objective stance means that we're capable of calling into question the, fu- the real value of those goals and projects. And human beings are capable of asking the question, why? Uh, and they're capable, if, as anybody who's ever encountered a, a six-year-old knows, they're capable of asking the question, why, over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at a certain point, we, we take certain answers to be good enough, but always sort of, you know, recognizing that we could ask why further, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, if Nagel uses the example, if you uh, ask me for some aspirin, um, I'm a nice person. I presumably am just going to give you some if I have it, but I might ask why you want it. And you might say, uh, because I have a headache and I might ask you why you care about your headache. Mm -hmm. And you might tell me that it's painful. And I might ask you why you care about pain, right? (laughs) We kind of human beings are interesting creatures in the sense that we can recognize that this is possible. Uh, and yet, uh, that's, that doesn't seem that gloomy. Right. Right, So, I mean, this is, uh, Nagel rejects the idea that um, 
our our size in the universe. So going back to what we were saying about Camus, Camus says, oh, we're, you know, we're really small in the scheme of things. We're really just a blip on the timeline. And Nagel points out that, look, our existences wouldn't be any less absurd if we took up more space mm -hmm. or if we existed for longer because the real source of the absurdity of our condition is this conflict within our own inner lives that, that, that we care about our projects, but that we know from the subjective stance, but that we know from the objective stance that it's impossible to fundamentally justify or ground the value of those projects. Right. Interesting. Um, yeah. Nagel says a couple of things. One, he, he points out in that famous paper how much bigger we are than bats, right? which is... <laughs> well, that's the whole know, point. Of don't know what it's like to be a bat. <laughs> um, about the, the, the why thing, I've, I've thought for a long time about... I've had a, a, a belief about this. Tell me what you think, if you think this is sure. right. So kids will do this for forever, right? When, mm -hmm. when Henry was little, he would say, why, why, why? And, you know, eventually we'd just say, okay, you know, we're done. That's <laughs> no, more, no more asking. Um, but adults tend to not do that. Yeah. Um, I think it's because it's part of the social contract, right? They, okay. That we have this sort of tacit agreement that I'm not going to why you beyond all scope and reason. Yeah. Um, but you're not going to do it to me either, right? They, right. One to two questions, if we're really curious, is is about all you get. Yeah, and I wonder if that has to do with, you know, we tend to um, respect that people get to have their own consciences, mm -hmm. right? They get to feel about things. We're not making windows into people's souls. They get to feel about things the way that they want to feel about them. Right, um, right. Uh, but if we ask them to fundamentally ground them, we would be asking to find common space sort of accessible to everyone that might not actually exist. exist. Yeah, it's a yeah. subjective thing. And, and people don't want to be held up to those kinds of scrutiny. Yeah. So we're talking about, uh, I mean, I think Nagel's, in all these other accounts of absurdity we've, we've discussed up to now or these features of absurdity, we could say, uh, how does this manifest itself in popular culture? And I think it, when it comes to Nagel's account of absurdity, it, it manifests itself in every form of popular culture because he's just describing what it's like to be human. You know mm -hmm. what? Uh, and, and this feature of us that we're capable of taking the subjective stance and the objective stance at the same time uh, is, not, is, is what makes us really interesting creatures too. You might think it's what set, sets us apart from uh, non-human animals. Um, it's, I mean, obviously our capacity for reason has been evolutionarily advantageous. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's, it's, it's up to this, now, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the fact that we're not just, uh, capable of fixating on particular desires, but also reflecting on the reasonableness of those desires that's helped us stay alive all this time. So, yeah, right, right. Uh, so again, not doom and gloom. Nice. Thanks, Nagel. Now it's time for a segment called, What Do People on the Telephone Think About the Meaning of Life? Which is our de facto person on the street segment. Only on the phone. All right. Today we spoke with Dr. Larry Udell. Amy Wicks, Dr. Gary Johnson, and Julie Sanders. Larry, what, if anything, makes life meaningful? So, my thoughts on the meaning of life 
go back to uh, Tolstoy's novel, War and Peace, where the main character, Peter, or Pierre sometimes, uh, <clears throat> is talking to a peasant named Platon Karataev about this subject. Uh, and uh, Karataev responds that the meaning of life is the day-to-day -day living of it. And so in that sense, I guess you could say not what, if anything, makes life meaningful, or in response to the question, what, if anything, makes life meaningful, the answer is, in a way, everything. Uh, it's more a matter of how we do it and how we put meaning into it uh, by acting on our values. Uh, and so as a philosopher, I think the philosopher who came closest to addressing this, uh, well, I don't know closest, but one of the philosophers who addressed this and who I regularly refer to is Aristotle. And uh, John Rawls, in fact, even talks about what he calls the Aristotelian principle, which is simply the idea of developing our faculties and making ourselves uh, uh, what we are. Um, so I'll just mention one other philosopher who sort of ties in with this, uh, going from Tolstoy to Aristotle to uh, Sartre in <clears throat> the play No Exit, where near the end of the play, uh, Inez says to uh, Garcin, <clears throat> it's what one does and nothing else that shows the stuff one's made of. Uh, and uh, so... It's our actions which reflect our choices, which reflect our values. And uh, to me, that's the meaning of life. Again, it's just the day-to-day -day living of it. Let's see what Amy Wicks had to say. So to me, I, I think one of the most important things that makes life meaningful, at least in this stage of my life. So, you know, I'm 44. Um, I've been working since I was um, 16, 17. Um, and I, I think for me, you know, having work that is meaningful, where you're not just uh, working, making widgets or, um, you know, just kind of toiling away for the man. Um, I'm fortunate that I have been able to work in, um, you know, the nonprofit world for most of my adult career, um, either, you know, working through it with an environmental organization like Greenpeace or working in child advocacy. So, you know, it's not the most rewarding financially, but you go to work every day and it's different and you feel like you're helping people and doing uh, some good in the world and making a difference in the life of somebody, whether it's, um, you know, somebody who uh, is part of a marginalized community that often ends up with the brunt of the pollution, or if it's, you know, a child who can't fend for themselves, who needs a foster home. I, I currently work for Utah Foster Care Foundation and prior to that worked for the National Center on Shaken Baby Syndrome um, developing uh, prevention programs. So that to me, you know, you spend a lot of your time at work. That makes a lot of it meaningful. I think having um, meaningful connections with friends and family and family can be people you're related to by blood or people that you choose to include in your circle of family. Um, I'm fortunate in that my uh, parents 
live nearby and are still with me and in relatively good health. And I think having that connection to um, your past for a lot of people is meaningful. I know for me it is. Um, and having connection with friends and family and, you know, the people in your neighborhood, the people in your community um, who make art and are fun to go out and do things with and spend time with. Um, I think that's all meaningful too, you know. Um, I, as you get older, you realize, you know, stuff is just stuff and having experiences is something that I hold very dear and valuable. And I would choose, you know, a trip with friends or family over uh, stuff. And, and I guess I'm fortunate that I have stuff and don't need more stuff. But, um, you know, I think being able to see the world through different eyes also brings some meaning to it as well. Um, so I think, you know, if I had to kind of narrow it down and sum it up, it would be, you know, having something meaningful to do, whether you're volunteering or getting paid to do it. Um, and having meaningful connections with those in your community brings meaning to life and uh, kind of makes the time that we're here uh, seem to have some purpose. So that's it. Gary, what do you think makes life meaningful? Um, what makes life meaningful? Uh, I guess I'll approach this from two perspectives. Uh, the first would have to be the personal, of course. All of us find meaning in our own lives. Um, and I guess I would start by uh, relying on what I've read throughout my life and what I think about what very smart people and educated people, philosophers and psychologists and so on, say about uh, what we know about uh, what makes for happy people. And I think meaningfulness and happiness are, are pretty highly correlated. Uh, Eric Erickson, one of my favorite psychologists, uh, studied happiness for a long time and came to the conclusion that happy people have things that they look forward to, uh, both in the short term and in the long term. Um, I want to go to lunch with my friend on Friday, uh, and I want to see my daughter graduate from college or uh, my grandchildren get married or whatever it may be, that each of us have short-term and long-term things uh, that we anticipate and that, that we want to see happen and that uh, depressed people are almost always the opposite, that they uh, don't feel like they have something eventful and uh, happy in their lives and that when we get depressed, uh, the things that we used to find enjoyable and joyful uh, no longer give us uh, that emotional satisfaction or something that we anticipate with relish. So for me personally, what makes life meaningful is uh, being around people who I think well of, who think well of me, and um, anticipating their successes um, and being able to laugh and spend time and eat food and and do that kind of thing. So I'm traveling to Colorado to see my family um, for Christmas, and I always uh, look forward to that with a great deal of anticipation and happiness, because I know we'll have a good time. 
and I don't get to see them that often, and I'm interested in their lives. So uh, that's the personal, I guess. Um, in the philosophical sense, what makes life meaningful? Um, the shortest and simplest answer for me would be that we're here. Uh, you know, why does something exist rather than nothing? No matter what your religious view or your philosophical outlook is, we are here. Um, and the evidence seems to suggest that this is the only life any of us will ever get. So spending it wisely on the things that make us happy and meaningful. And those are almost always, I think, uh, other directed things that um, if I make someone else's life better, it makes me feel better about myself. And that's a mutually um, reinforcing, very positive thing. I want to feel good about myself. And I do that by projecting good things onto other people. Uh, the trappings of wealth or power or status uh, for most people seem pretty vacuous and empty. Um, Donald Trump does not strike me as a happy person. <laughs> I don't think that um, having a great deal of wealth uh, makes you a happy person. Uh, finding contentment is about doing tasks. And I think uh, working is a very large part of that. You have to work. Um, I don't think that, you know, laying on the couch all day long and watching daytime TV makes you happy either. That you have to be doing work um, that is challenging and that is fun, but you consider meaningful from a personal perspective uh, because you see some result that you see as positive. And for most, and that could be building a bridge or, or uh, working for UNICEF, but it almost always involves, I think, helping other people or at least feeling like you're doing something that makes the world a better place, however you might define that. And of course, that's very personal. Julie, what, if anything, makes life meaningful? The question today put to me was, what makes life meaningful? For me, a meaningful life is being able to help others without expecting anything in return. I tend to be a chronic volunteer because that's when I feel most content and happy. Um, I like to, uh, we've collected blankets for the homeless before with my children. We have worked soup kitchens. We have worked church funerals. And I think any time you can make yourself a part of your community and give back, it gives you a sense of meaning. Um, happiness is not always what makes your life meaningful. It's nice when the two go hand in hand. Um, my grandchildren are the most meaningful thing in my heart, but not everybody gets to experience that. So meaningful life is a very personalized choice for you. I do think it's a choice, not a right to have a meaningful life. Um, just, I don't know. I don't have anything else to add. <laughs> okay, Rates, what are we liking this week? Well, we went to see a movie. We went to see The Possession of Hannah Grace because... We'll go see any horror movie that's in the theaters. Um, and it, I, we were surprised that it got such low ratings on 
Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, it was low, like 10%. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of hype about this before it came out. Um, it was going to be the next great um, exorcism movie and all that. Um, oh, see, I hadn't heard the hype, but I'd seen the ads and it looked creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I heard the hype after the fact. I read the some of the uh, reviews and uh, people were saying, boy, this was supposed to be you know, the, the best you know exorcism film in decades and stuff. Um, uh, and, and people really hated it. I mean, I don't think it was the, the next great anything. No. But yeah. I, I thought it was very good and a lot of fun and it looked cool and felt cool. Uh, there, there were some real dopey things. Um, one person gets killed and they look for him for about a minute. Um, and, and they just kind of seem to forget. But, yeah. um, you know, other than a couple little gaffes, um, yeah, it was, I, I, I would recommend it. But I'll recommend it knowing um, people probably won't like it anyway because clearly they don't. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's you got to know that possession movies are your cup of tea before you go into this thing. If you don't like that kind of thing, you know, this is a pretty standard fare Mm-hmm. Possession movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I I was you know I don't get creeped out at horror movies. I'm possession movies are sort of my my Achilles heel as, mm-hmm. as far as yeah, my. You were a little creeped out. I was there. a little creeped out, but like there were plenty of scenes where I had my hands in front of my eyes, like looking through the slits between my fingers, because there was some there was some disturbing imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, right, Hannah Grace looked amazing. Um, yeah. I, I, well, you know, I could have done without some of the CGI. Mm-hmm. elements but for the most part yeah really creepy yeah yeah um yeah no i, I liked it um did, say did, did you hear the one about the person that didn't pay their exorcism bill i no. they, they got repossessed <laughs> yeah okay that's two apologies um next week there will be no humor on my part um just like this week. <laughs> All right. So um, some other things just briefly. We're, we just started watching season three of The Good Place. Um, we had seen season one and two. And so we're going to binge watch the first nine episodes. Um, yeah. And we, and we started the first one. And then that seems fun. Yep. The Good Place is responsible for at least 50% of the excitement that my students are feeling about philosophy lately. Oh, yeah, I they get that, too. They come into the classroom just, hey, have you heard of this concept or that concept that came up on The Good Place from Chidi? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we talk about it. And so I think it's been really good for public philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so, too. It, it sort of reminds me of when The Matrix came out and there were lots of students excited about that and wanting to talk about the, the different aspects of it. And then interestingly, when the second and third Matrix films came out, um, which were also very philosophical, um, that didn't inspire any... It's because they saw Yeah, I mean, nobody pops in and says, oh my God, I just saw the second Matrix. Can we talk about free will a little bit? <laughs> um, basically, the Wachowski brothers kind of um, beat you over the head with it, and, and then that was that. Um, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't very good. Um, yeah, and so I'm um, still enjoying Room 104. The, the season might have ended. They've been doing two episodes a week, and we're up through 10. I don't know how many they're planning on doing. Um, and then I started my Christmas tradition where um, every year right after Thanksgiving, I, I just watch Bad Santa a lot. I put it on <laughs> while I grade. Um, I think it makes me a, a, a kinder and more compassionate grader somehow. Um, I, I don't know how it works. I just feel good about it. Um, so I, I get it on, and now that and Bad Santa 2 are on Netflix. 
Um, oh, so I've, help us. I've watched Bad Santa um, thrice this this holiday season already, and Bad Santa two once. Um, I'll get a couple more viewings in. Um, yeah, I, I, I watched that over and over, and then um, I watched National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation usually more than once a year because that's really good. Um, and then I don't know about Elf. Elf's my favorite Christmas movie, but we usually save that for Christmas Eve. Yep. Um, so I've, I've been purposely not watching Elf, even though I really want to. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like if I did watch it, I would be a, a cotton-headed mini-muggins, and, and nobody wants that. It's time for our listener musing. This one's a short one. Ted writes, Hey guys, I was wondering what you think about Robin Hood. Is he a good guy because he helps out the poor? Or is he a bad guy because he does bad things such as stealing? So what do you think? Well, I think, I think pop culture encourages us to think of him as a good guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I mean, my, my initial thought is that redistribution of wealth should be handled by government um, so that uh, it can be principled in, and, and those principles can come from like the careful reflection of the people who constructed them and, and it can be universally um, carried out in the same way. That, that sounds great, but in the Robin Hood scenario, um, the government's failing, right? That's, mm-hmm. The hypothesis is they're not doing their job. So under those circumstances... Uh, uh, still, I think that, that there's too much subjectivity uh, built into the Robin Hood system. Yeah, that's, that's the worry I have. I, I don't like people thinking, ooh, things are bad, I'll just fix them myself, right? That's how you end up with militias Very occupying um, you know, wildlife centers in Oregon and, and things like that. Um, yeah, and also Robin Hood was a bit of an attention whore, I think, right? It, it, was, it was all about the publicity. So was he all that? For, for the real Robin Hood? No, no, just like in the Disney cartoon, you know. He liked, he liked being the great Robin Hood, you know, the mm-hmm. little fox that outsmarted the lion. Anyway, my take, not a good guy. People stop doing things like that. All right, well... Episode 10 is in the can. That's a wrap. Once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Um, what do we got going next week? Uh, actually, I think we better keep our cards pretty close to the vest for next week because we're still working out some details. But I, I guarantee it's going to be fun. Right. Well, we'll tell you this. We'll talk a little bit about pop culture and a little bit about philosophy. <laughs> That's a and, promise. And the rest is none of your business. All right. Thank you very much for listening. Bye.